So, you know, that word, bittersweet, you know, it's a word, uh, it's a good word. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a word we use to describe when something is, is bitter and hard, right? But also, at the same time, it's something that, that's, that's, that, that's good, that has some good to it. Uh, and so often we can use that word where it's, it's hard, but it's manageable, like we just mentioned with uh, Pastor John, someone, who, someone leaving. That's, that's, that's a good thing in terms of we're happy for where he's going, but hard at the same time, right? Uh, but there's other times we want, we want to use that word bittersweet, but it's, it's not easy to use that word because uh, you have these two realities. It's something you want to see good in it, but the hard part of it is especially hard. And it, can be hard it can be tough to be in the middle of that kind of tension. And, and that's where we're going to go this morning as we look at our, our passage, how there can be often two realities in our world. There are two realities in our world. One reality that, that's very hard and tough, another reality where there's, there's good that's happening at the same time. And so the first reality that we might say describes our world, that is a, uh, a way of, of understanding how things operate in the world, I'm describing as the deadly threat of the evil powers. The deadly threat of the evil powers. It's not a Star Wars reference. <laughs> uh, the deadly threat of the evil powers. I'm using the word evil powers as like an umbrella term to talk about people, institutions, structures that do evil things in this world. So when you sort of think of that, people, institutions, structures, I sort of say it's the evil powers, right? It's the evil powers. And the reality is we have a world that's broken by sin. And because of that, the evil powers, people, institutions, structures, they have free reign, right? They have a lot of space and opportunity to do evil things. And especially if we think about sort of the evil things that happen from people, institutions, structures, it tends to be in the space of, of dehumanizing people, of hurting people, of destroying human life. So we have a world where people regularly are mistreated, abused, enslaved, killed, where people are cheated, they're lied to, they're taken advantage of, a world where people are displaced and forced to move, a world where people are wrongly accused and wrongly detained. That's hard. And we have to sort of figure out how we endure, how we suffer and, and endure in the hardness of that, a world that's always under the constant deadly threat of the evil powers. So that's one reality we live in. But another reality, at the same time as Christians that we believe we live in, is that God's power, God's plan, I should say, can't be stopped by the evil powers. So no matter what people, institutions, structures are doing, God's plan is always still in effect. What he wants to have happen will happen. And what's the big thing that God wants to have happen? What's the description, the best description of God's plan for this world? We saw it in Matthew 1. His plan is to bring salvation to the world. So one of the things we also believe we live in a reality where God is always making his things happen. One of the things you'll see as we go through our passage this morning is the word fulfilled. You'll see it in verse 15, verse 18, verse 23. So something happens and they'll say, and this was a fulfillment of God's plan. It's the Bible's way of saying God's plan is still in effect. This stuff happened and yet God is still working. His plan can't be stopped by any evil powers. So two realities that we live in. Our world is a world that's under the threat of the evil powers, and we know the consequences that people suffer under the evil powers. At the same time, we live in a world where we believe there's a God, and that he's still in control. His plan still works. That God sent Jesus into the world, Matthew 1, to save his people from their sins, and that's still in effect. The evil powers can't stop that. So what, I'll see in our, what we'll see in our passage is sort of how we see both happening at the same time. And really where we end up at the end, and what I hope we can learn as we sort of go through this is, what does it mean to live 
in both realities, in the in-between of both these things? How do we live in the midst of both those things? So let's jump in. We're in verse 13, Matthew chapter 2. It says this, that when they, that's the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So Joseph has another dream from an angel. This time warning him, Herod's going to come and try to find where Jesus is and kill him. So quick recap, if you weren't here last week, uh, wise men, so kind of astrologers from maybe Babylon area, come into Jerusalem and say, hey, we think your Messiah, the one God has promised to send to bring salvation and redemption to the world has been born. Can you help us find where he is? King Herod is king, and he sees this as a threat. Even though this is the whole Jewish culture is about this, a Messiah coming and bringing salvation, Herod is thinking, like, I don't want this. And so he tells the wise men, go find him. You can find him in Bethlehem, but come back, tell me where he is. The wise men don't do that. And so we see in our passage that he's enraged by this. Later on, we'll see. He, he, his fear of losing power leads to him saying, I need to, to kill this as soon as possible. And so this angel is warning that this is going to happen. And so we're told Joseph and his family leave. And you see there in, uh, in verse 14 that he leaves by night. The impression is that, like, they had to do this suddenly. Right? They left with the clothes on their back and whatever they could carry. In the middle of the night, they go down to Egypt. That's about 75 miles to get to that border, to cross from Egypt, uh, to cross from Israel into Egypt. So this is a long journey with not much besides just, hey, we need to get out of here as soon as possible. The reason to go to Egypt is there was a Jewish community in Egypt. And so they were going to somewhere where they could know at least there's going to be people like them, with customs like them, right? However, at the same time, so it's not like Jesus was having to live in a kind of refugee camp when he goes to Egypt. He's living in a community, him and his family, but he's still a refugee. You understand? So that Jesus, in the early years of his life, the reason we, we can see him as a refugee is that he is living in Egypt not by choice. His family is living here not by choice, but because of the threat in Israel, the threat to their family. They're in a Jewish community, but it's Egypt, right? They're a minority population in a majority culture. So that means he's living in a place where he's not in the majority. The language is not uh, the language of, of Israel. It's not Aramaic. Uh, he's having to learn different customs. His family's having to learn different customs and traditions. They're in a different place, a place they didn't intend to go, the place they had to go to suddenly. It's not a summer vacation. Uh, this is them running from imminent danger for something that was definitely coming for them. So again, this is the reality, right? The threat of the evil powers, what they do, how they manifest themselves. In this particular case, as I said, a lot of times it's affecting human life. It hurts human life. In this case, disrupting people's lives, causing people to have to flee and go to other places where they don't want to, when they wanted to stay where they're at. We see this then, and of course we see this still today. I could list a long list of examples of this. Of course, many of you are familiar with the war in Ukraine. And we've sent support uh, over the last year or so. Some organizations we know that are helping this. And, and so you know, it's still happening. <laughs> People fleeing parts of Ukraine from, from Russians coming in and the war that's happening there. Uh, closer to us, uh, many of you know uh, I'm from a Haitian family. And what's happening in Haiti is horrendous right now. Haitians fleeing Haiti because uh, they're afraid of being forced into a gang or sexually assaulted, kidnapped, killed, just for going to get your groceries. Imagine that. You're going to go get your groceries, and you don't know if you'll come back. So people fleeing in Haiti right now. Of course, many other parts of our world, in Sudan, 
um, parts of, of uh, South America, like Venezuela, people fleeing, running. This is reality. The evil powers and what they do, the effect of them, leads to these type of things. And we see it in the life of Jesus. So that's one reality for our world. But another reality we overly on our world is that even here we can say God is still present. That God still is God and his plan for this world is still in effect. And the evil powers can't stop it. And so just as we had this description of what's happening, we see this, this, these couple of verses. How even in what happens here is the fulfillment of God's plan. That God had already anticipated this, had even worked it into his plan, had made it in his plan as a way to fulfill God's, what God is trying to do. As further establish Jesus as the Messiah. So this is verse 14 to 15. So Joseph rises, takes the child and his mother by night and departs to Egypt. And remains there until the death of Herod. And here it is. This was to fulfill... What the word had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So that, that phrase that you have here, that's quoted here, out of Egypt, I called my son, that's a quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. So what Matthew is doing here is saying, remember this that happened back in, in Hosea. And this, if you want to serve a theological word for this, he's doing what's called typology. It's like what happened here in Hosea this, this, or what, what Hosea is talking about, the reference of what God was doing and how he called his people of Israel, that is a foreshadow. It's a, you might call it a prototype of what's happening here with Jesus. What's happening is the story of Israel, the prophet Hosea, and what he was saying about Israel back then, it's, a, it's pointing ahead to something that's also, foreshadow, also seen in Jesus, but even in a fuller way. So let me explain. Israel was often seen as Yahweh's son, right? It's sort of a child of God, right? And so God calls Israel out of Egypt, you know, the whole Exodus story, et cetera. And why does God call Israel out of Egypt? God calls Israel out of Egypt to fulfill a mission, to be a witness to the nations. So that's what Hosea is referring to there. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called Israel. Here's the thing. Israel didn't do a very good job, did they? <laughs> they were called out of Egypt, called to be a witness to God, to the nations, and it didn't work, and it failed, what God is saying here in this passage, what Matthew is saying is that what happened with Israel is, is now happening again with Jesus. Jesus is like a new Israel, but what God was always intending to do is now going to be fulfilled with Jesus. That here, even with Jesus going down to Egypt, God's going to do the same thing. He's going to call Jesus eventually out of Egypt. In the way that Israel came out of Egypt but failed to do all that God called him to do when he called him out of Egypt, Jesus eventually will come out of Egypt. This is not the end of Jesus' story is what's being said here. Jesus will come out of Egypt, and where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Where Israel was sinful and faithless to God, Jesus, on the other hand, will be sinless and faithful to God. That here, even in this exile, it's looking ahead. It's saying, don't think this is the end. Herod has done these things, has led to these things, but the same way the things happened to Israel, and I called them out, and it won't work out, I'm still telling this story, and I'm telling this story now with Jesus, and it's going to work. Jesus is going to be called out of Egypt, and he's going to accomplish the plan that God has set out to do, to bring salvation to the world. God's plan still works, even against the evil powers. So let's continue in our story, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Bethlehem's only a couple hours away from Jerusalem, so probably a day or so he realized, these guys are coming back. This is unacceptable. So he sends his troops into Bethlehem to kill these infant boys. I mean, this is one of the more horrible examples of the evil powers, of what people 
institutions and structures can do in this world. And sadly, this is pretty ordinary violence for Herod. Herod was known for killing a lot of people. When he became king, he killed off all the people in the previous dynasty. Didn't want any chance of them ever coming in. Just wiped them out. Uh, he was known for killing a lot of his priests that were in his court. At one point, he killed 300 of the nobles in his kingdom. Uh, last week, we talked about how he, sort of, he was paranoid that maybe his wife or his sons were going to sort of take over. So he killed his wife, killed his mother-in-law, killed three of his sons. So when you sort of see it this way, what he did here was, was nothing. Sadly, in his eyes, and really in the eyes of the kingdom, Bethlehem is a small village, maybe 15 to 20 kids were killed. For them, barely a footnote, not even a footnote in the royal newspaper. That's why no one would have mentioned it. This is nothing compared to what he's done. But that's what makes it more evil, doesn't it? Just because something is not as big of a tragedy compared with other tragedies doesn't mean it's not a horrific tragedy, especially for those families who experienced this, who would never forget it what they endured, what they faced. We think about this, the evil acts that come from the evil powers. I'm here specifically, it's not just about displacing people. So often it leads to actually hurting and killing the innocent and vulnerable. And we've seen this over and over in human history, over and over the devaluing and destruction of human life. I mean, just so you, I mean, we should just really be clear. I'm gonna list a bunch of different examples of this. What we saw in the first century has not gone away. We can trace a steady line from back then to today of things that have happened in this country around the world. So uh, the Indian Removal Act of 1830. You guys familiar with this? Native Americans living in the southeast of the United States forced to move to Oklahoma. Thousands of them, thousands of them died. They were living there, said, no, you, you can't live here. Made them leave their place. Um, of course, uh, the history of slavery in our country. 246 years, black people were enslaved. Uh, but then even after they were freed, 100 years more of systemic oppression. You know, honestly, and I know this is sort of one of those big controversial subjects, but you could link even what happens with black people in this country to how we think about the, a topic like abortion. Uh, I know this is sort of something that people have talked a lot about in different spaces, but one of the things that, however you think about this, one of the things I have never been able to sort of let go of, or I still, I think about pretty much all the time, is if you look at sort of statistics, black and brown babies tend to be aborted way more than any other babies, that if you look at if all those children those mothers were supported, provided support to be able to have those children, there would be 33% more black people in this country. 33% more black people. Like, we see black people as a minority group. Maybe we really not. <laughs> really not. 33% more. So what are the institutions and structures that have led to something like that? I'm sort of just zeroing on one thing. I could look at other things. Uh, of course, uh, human trafficking, another example of, of what... Uh, evil powers do. 27 million victims worldwide at any given point being forced to work, being forced to be sex workers. Ethnic cleansing has long been something that's happened in this country, happened all around the world. Happened in Nazi Germany, happened in British India when British India was forced to become India and Pakistan, and uh, the killing of many Muslims and Hindus in the wake of that. Uh, it's happening today, of course, in places like Sudan and Burma. This is an overwhelming reality to deal with. I, I can't, I even, you know, I, I'm the one who wrote this, and just going through this, it's hard to go through this list and knowing that this is on the short end of the things that have happened in our world. So we reckon with sort of the, the, the heaviness of this, and yet, and this links us with what we see in our passage, what's often called the massacre of the innocents, what happened in Bethlehem. 
And yet our Bibles are telling us that God is still present even in the worst realities, even in the worst evils, even in this. God is saying, what I'm doing can't be stopped. The evil powers will do this, but I'm still bringing salvation and redemption and hope into this world. And it's true even in what happens here. Here's verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, the Bible uses the word fulfilled to say something is being foreshadowed. And so what's being referenced here by the prophet Jeremiah, he's talking about when Israel was sent into exile. So Israel uh, was forced, was conquered by Assyria and Babylon. All the people were forced in chains to leave their homeland and go to Assyria and go to Babylon. And Ramah is a place they would have passed by as they were being marched into these foreign countries. And he's mentioning Rachel. Rachel is one of the mothers of Israel, right? So I'd say one of the founders of Israel, he's, he's imagining her weeping as she watches her people, the descendants from her, leaving their land and going to Babylon and the weeping that happens there. So this is, this is what, what Matthew is saying here is what happened then, the weeping that happened there, we're seeing it happen yet again, aren't we? The weeping that's happening even in this small village of Bethlehem. But that's not the only thing that Matthew is saying here. So what happens oftentimes is when the Bible mentions a, 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 a quote from the Old Testament, it's saying, think about all that also was said when that quote was said, when that prophecy was made. So Jeremiah, back when he said the weeping of the people as they're forced to go into exile, in the next verse, here's what he says. But they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. So in quoting this, here's something that happened back then. And God, is, and God back then was saying, hey, the people are going into exile in the great weeping as they leave everything behind. But there's still hope that they'll return. That's an early picture of what will happen with Jesus. Here's all the weeping of the people. But there's still hope. Because God's plan is still at work. Jesus escapes this massacre so that one day he can establish a world where massacres like that will never, ever happen again. But God's plan to bring salvation is still happening even in this tragedy. This tragedy is a reminder that tragedies like this happen and they need to stop from happening. So God is saying my plan to make it so that these things never happen again is still in effect. That Jesus has been rescued so that one day he can face all these things and make sure they never happen again. So two realities. The evil powers at work, but God's plan is still in effect. So, last part of our passage, Jesus' family is living in Egypt, but something happens that gives him a chance to move back. It's the death of Herod. So, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archaeus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So one of Herod, Herod's died, one of his sons is in charge in Judea, but this son was also cruel. And so Joseph thinks, I shouldn't go back there. The angel confirms it. And that's why they don't go back to Bethlehem. They go back to Galilee, which is just outside of the region where that son is. Now, there's another son of Herod that was ruling over Galilee, but he was a much better ruler, much safer place for them to be. And so that's where Jesus ends up growing up and will launch his ministry. 
So we see this happening, but yet again, so here's, again, the threat of the evil powers. A reminder that they never really go away. <laughs> Herod dies, but his son comes in, and he's also cruel, and that affects what they want to do. But God's plan is still in effect. We see that fulfillment again, right, that fulfillment language in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So mentioned, when Matthew says the prophets, he's not, this time he's not quoting a specific verse. He's just saying, if you look at the prophets, the prophetic tradition, what are the things they say about the Messiah? One of the things they said about the Messiah back then is that the Messiah is going to be despised. Uh, people are going to look down at him. He's going to be rejected. And so they're saying here, what Matthew is saying, here again, Jesus being forced to come out of Nazareth is a fulfillment of what God is doing here. Because back then, to say that someone was from Nazareth, it wasn't like saying you're from a cool place. <laughs> saying from Nazareth, it's like saying, like, you're just a ghetto kid. You're a hood kid. You're a trailer park kid. That's, that's, it was like an insult to sort of really bring attention to the fact that you're from Nazareth. Remember, one of Jesus' followers, before, the first time he met Jesus, he's like, you're from Nazareth? Can anything good come from that place? Right? That, that's the effect of that. And so what Matthew is saying is God's plan was always to say, hey, the kind of Messiah I'm going to bring to this world is not someone who's going to be, like, famous and popular. He's going to be someone people are going to look down on. He's going to be from Nazareth. Right? That, that sense, that Nazareth confirms what God was saying through the prophets. He's going to be someone despised, looked down, and rejected. So... Come to the end of our passage, what have we seen? We've seen those two realities. We've seen first the threat of the evil powers, right? What evil people, what people, evil things, people, institutions, and structures will do in this world. That's a real threat. There is pain and suffering and injustice. And I want you to know, like, we shouldn't shy away from that. We shouldn't downplay it. We shouldn't act like that's not something significant to wrestle with. That's not sort of something that, for many people, you stumble over as you sort of try to figure out Christianity. I get it. But one thing, if you're going to even sort of wrestle with Christianity or think through Christianity, like don't, don't get this twisted. Like, at least give credit to the fact that our Bibles are really staring this right in the face. They're not ignoring it. They're not sugarcoating it. It's actually right in our passage. One of the things you'll notice five times in our passage, it mentions the child and the mother, the child and the mother. Our passage didn't have to do that, right? It's a way, literary way of saying, by referring not to just Jesus and Mary, but saying it's a child and his mother. It's reminding us, like, innocent people are being affected here. Innocent people are under threat. And so we do well to sort of, like, feel that. <laughs> feel like what it is to look on your news, to look on your phone, to look in your own life and see people, institutions, and structures doing things that dehumanize you, that threaten you, that do all the things. People like you, maybe you yourself, and all the people around you. And that's the reality of our world. But there's also a second reality that, that's here in this passage that the Bible wants us to sort of to really see. God is still God. His plan can't be stopped. That God is at work bringing about salvation. It doesn't matter what the evil powers are doing, how they may rage. We know they will rage. We know bad things will happen. And yet God is saying, I'm still at work. This thing is still in effect. My plan of salvation is still happening. Both realities at the same time. And so the thing, the question, as I said in the beginning, is how do you live in both those realities? How do you live in the tension between those two things? And I, if you've probably, if you've been here for a while, this is sort of something I've, if you've listened to my sermons, something I've sort of come back to in multiple ways. It's some, one of the things I'm thinking about a lot these days. I think in the current space that we're in, in this world, I'm more aware of things that are happening in this world than I've ever been. That's sort of the good and the bad of the technology we have. 
And man, it's a lot. <laughs> and so I'm, I've, I've long felt like I need new ways and better ways, more ways of just saying, how do we wrestle with the tension between these two realities? I believe there's a God, but I also believe bad things happen, really bad. <laughs> how do I sort of think through this? How do we wrestle through this? What are th- ways, even better ways of saying what the Bible says about this? And so here's sort of another way, which another crack, I guess, at this for me. Um, what does this mean for those of you who are not yet Christians, but also for those of us who are Christians? How do we sit in these realities? I think we sit in them. Imagine sort of there's like two rocks that we can stand on. So there's one rock for this foot and one rock for that foot. One rock that God's going to give us is going to give you comfort. And the other rock gives you hope. Comfort and hope helps you live in both realities. So that first rock, how do we have comfort? We have comfort by knowing this. That God personally knows what it is to suffer and endure in the face of the evil powers. Personally knows. You've heard me make this point in other sermons. But I keep coming back to it because there's more to draw from this than just me saying that. That God is near to us in our experiences, in your experiences. We don't understand all of why these things happen. But one thing the Bible wants to say for sure is that God is present in them and knows what it is to face them. We see this specifically with Jesus. I love this quote. Um, This commentator says this. God does not enter the world in ease and comfort. He's not born into privilege and power. From his birth, he faces oppression, violence, and terror. God is in the heavens, sending up a plan of salvation and redemption. He has all sorts of ways of bringing about this plan. And the way he chooses to enact this plan is to send Jesus into the heart of oppression, into the heart of terror, into the heart of suffering. He could have had a plan that said, hey, I'm going to set you up to be in the Roman Empire. You're going to be next in line to Julius Caesar, and you're going to rule and do all the things that you do. That's the kind of Messiah that you're going to be. But God says, no, I need a Messiah for the people who experience the worst of this life. I need a Messiah for those who know what it is to endure racism and prejudice and oppression and violence and discrimination and displacement. I need a Messiah. I want a Messiah for those people and everywhere, everyone in between. Sending Messiah to the very bottom of our world means that he's able to be Messiah for all our world. So that's what we have with our God. We think of Jesus, we have someone who knows personally what it is to be an outsider. He knows personally what it is to be desperate. So desperate, you got to leave everything behind. With Jesus, we have someone who knows what it is to have tragic, senseless violence be part of your story. It's part of his story. I imagine, like, people he knew as he grew up. His parents told him, like, yes, that cousin you knew got killed. (laughs) Born around the same time. He knows what it is to have that tragic, senseless violence be part of his story. The difference it then makes to say that we have a God we have Jesus who has personally experienced this and has experienced some of the worst that anyone can experience. It reminds us then, yes, we have a God who is near to us, a God who remains near to us even as we face the threat of the evil powers. He's not distant from pain and suffering. He's right there in it with us. So that's the rock we stand on, and that gives us comfort. And the reason it gives us comfort is because we know that God is not saying Wow, you're suffering. I'm going to avoid this. (laughs) We have a God who says, I'm in it with you. We have a God. When we say Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that means he is in your suffering with you right now. You're not alone. And in fact, if you think about this, while Jesus escapes the threat that came from Herod and all those who are associated with him, he doesn't escape evil forever. 
Jesus escapes that threat so one day he can face all evils and all sins. Jesus suffers and dies eventually so that in his resurrection he can make a world where evil and sin are eventually vanquished forever. So that leads us, so that gives us comfort, but that leads us right to the second thing, doesn't it? He's right near to us in these things, but the second rock we stand on that gives us hope is to know that God's plan is the final plan. This reality where God is in control of all things and all evil and suffering is vanquished, that is the final reality. That's the final version of this world. So right now we live accepting that. I'm saying this knowing this is maybe a hard thing to say, but it's a true thing. I'm saying we live in a world where we don't have all the answers for why things happen. We have some of them, we don't have all of them. And I'm just going to say, this is maybe bold to say, anyone, any religion or philosophy that wants to say, I'm going to give you all the answers to all this, like, no, they're, they're, they're gonna, they're, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's going to let you down. Any version of Christianity that wants to say, here's the answers to every single one of the things. But that's not how this world works. That's not how God works. We see it over and over. Things happen and they don't understand until centuries later. So this is not about saying, here's all the answers. This is about wrestling in the space that we're in. Why the evil powers do what they do and get away with what they do. But it is about saying you can still wrestle with it and have hope because one thing you can know for sure is why you don't know why the things happen now, you can know what will happen for sure in the future. That God's plan can't be stopped and that in the end, his plan, salvation and redemption for this world, that's the final version of this world. That is where we're headed towards. And you see it true in this passage. You notice one of the things in this passage that happens? Herod dies. <laughs> and one of the things we know from uh, other parts of, uh, of uh, ancient history, Herod died pretty horribly in pain. He had like some tumors in inside of him, all these kind of things. But for all that Herod did, he eventually died. His threat went away. And when we see with Herod, what happened with all people, institutions, and structures that do evil in this world, Eventually they will die. Eventually they'll be vanquished. And in the end, all that lasts, all that remains is a God who will reign forever with his people that he saved. That's the final version of this world. So we stand on comfort knowing that God is near us, Jesus is near us. But we also stand with hope knowing that this is where we're headed towards. All that we face and endure, all the evil powers, they'll be swallowed up, swallowed up and redeemed by our Lord God. So final encouragement for you this morning. Number one, like, I'm, I'm, don't ignore the hard realities of this world, the evil threats that we face. Don't ignore them, but don't be swallowed up by them. Don't be swallowed up by them. You can be. I get it. I have been at times. But there is something that God gives us, a faith to know that Jesus is there saying, every time you're afraid of being swallowed up, I'm there to pull you out, to give you the comfort to persevere through these hard realities. We face them. We're honest about them. We're honest about them in a way that then gives us the hope that we need to continue going forward. So every Sunday I'm encouraging you to seek Jesus. For some of you, seek Jesus for the comfort that you need. Comfort because sometimes, well, knowing what you need is, is knowing that you're not getting answers for everything, but you're getting comfort and knowing that Jesus is there with you in it. For some of you this morning, seek Jesus for that. Seek Jesus for comfort. For others of you, I'm going to encourage you to seek Jesus for hope. You need hope this morning. And here's the hope Jesus wants to give you. For this day and the next day after that, God's plan is still at work and still in effect. And his track record is flawless. No one has ever stopped what God wants to do. No one has ever gotten in the way of what God brings about. His track record is flawless. He's a dynasty 
that has never had another, another winner, right? No one's ever come against what God wants to do. And that's the hope for what you need to know what's going to happen tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. We have a God who reigns. We live in the in-between, yes, but we will know we'll live forever in the final answer. All that has, all God has for us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and thank you for the opportunity to be together. And Lord, um, I thank you, Lord, that your plan of salvation and redemption is flawless. It's why so many of us here can say we're saved and that we're close to Jesus, we're in Jesus. And so, Lord, even in that, Lord, there's things we need sometimes specifically from you. You've saved us, but there's things we need. And some of us need comfort. Lord, I pray that in a tangible way, almost in the sense that, that some of us need to feel that you have your arm around them right now. Some of them need to see the tears you have in your eyes because of what they see happening around the world, what they've experienced in themselves. That you're not far away from our pain and suffering. 